Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. That year was... Very, it, it was felt like a very flat year uh, in in some ways because while there's great joy in having a child, uh, there was a you know a way that I already knew I knew my father was not going to survive his illness, and so I had the sense that you know my son was coming into his personality as my father was kind of coming out of his. My name is Jordan Kistner, and this is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers about experiences that completely turned them upside down, disoriented them in their lives, changed them, and changed how and why they wanted to write. Hi, everybody. Jordan here, recording once again from not a real recording studio, but making do. Uh, and I'm so thrilled to be introducing this conversation that I had with Wendy S. Walters, who is a writer and an artist who I admire so much. And this conversation, as I've been reflecting on it, is a lot about riding the line between life and death and having to kind of straddle between relationships with one a person on the one hand who is just coming into the very beginning of their life and on the other hand somebody who is at the very end of their life and that's a subject that feels a little bit fresh and raw for a lot of us right now since there's so much concern about mortality and illness right now but it's also one that's been on my mind for most of the last 2 years because I was working on this piece partially for the book partially for a reported piece of journalism, wherein I was spending a lot of time with people who 
are death investigators or part of the medical legal death investigation apparatus. So a lot of coroners, death investigators, medical examiners, and forensic pathologists. And something that surprised me about spending time with those people is how light they were. I I think I had expected purely out of my own folly that people who voluntarily handled the dead or performed autopsies or were just around injury and death all the time, electively as their job, that there was going to be something a little bit macabre or morose or Wednesday Adams-y about them. But they were not at all like that. They were engaged with life, actually, in a way that I found to be exceptional And in particular, there was this one doctor that I got to spend a lot of time with, Dr. Elizabeth Mooney, who is a forensic pathologist. She was the youngest forensic pathologist at this particular practice where I was spending a lot of time. And she was both someone who went to work every day and conducted autopsies and dealt with some of the darkest, saddest, most violent, most difficult realities of being a human being and how people live and how people die. And then also she was this blue-eyed, bright-faced, cheerful voice, young mother. I would have met her on the street and thought she was a kindergarten teacher. There was something very buoyant and light about her. And she had a young child. And so she, in her daily life was sort of moving back and forth between the space of ushering new life into the world and ushering expired life out of it. And she was pretty forthright about the fact that not everybody has the emotional temperament to be able to do that. There are a lot of people who can't do the kind of job that she does, period, right? Like a lot of people are not going to be able to handle being around so much death. But she also taught me a lot about how to be graceful in moving between those two realities of the world. There was a day when I was watching her perform an autopsy and I was there with a photographer who I was working with on this story. And the photographer and I were conferring between ourselves about whether or not the magazine we were working for would run any of the photos that she was taking because we were assuming that any pictures that involved corpses would be too much. As the photographer said, I don't think they're going to run anything. And I said, no, 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 I don't think so either. Too gory. And Liz heard us talking and looked up and looked up at me and said, very simply, but some jobs are gory. And it took me aback um, because it reminded me of something that she was constantly reminding me and her colleagues were constantly reminding me, which is that simply because it's unpleasant for us to think about doesn't mean that it's not there. And just because it's hard for us to think about or be near doesn't mean that somebody doesn't need to show up to perform that kind of care and think about those problems and think about and excavate the story of a death and perhaps the meaning of a death, which is fundamentally how they understand the work of an autopsy. Forensic pathologists like to say that an autopsy is the last story you will ever tell, but it's one that you need help telling, and their job is to help you tell it. And that notion of death being something that requires or involves storytelling just as much as birth or life is something that is really at the heart of this conversation that Wendy and I had and at the heart of her story, which she says she is still learning how to write and maybe learning how to live. 
Uh, I'm Wendy S. Walters, and I'm a poet and nonfiction writer. When you said threshold, I was a little bit lost in, in some ways because I, f I feel like there is a kind of continual threshold uh, that I seem to be perched on. And, and then I, I, I realized that that in some ways has to do with my relationship to responsibility and my relationship to family, where there's just a little bit more that's expected of me each each day, each week, each year that I hadn't maybe anticipated, you know, when I was younger. So I started thinking about my family and I started thinking about this, you know, this moment, this particular year I had where my father was very ill and dying and my son was born. What year was that? How long ago was that? That was uh, 2010. And I wanted time to kind of slow down in that year. But I was also just physically overwhelmed from, you know, taking care of another person, from working, from also trying to continue my own work and traveling back and forth. My father was in Detroit, from New York to Detroit to, you know, to, to see him and to take care of him. So, so it, it was a, uh, it was an intense, an intense situation that didn't seem to peak. My father was fighting death with everything he had. There was no peace. Um, he was furious. And my son was ready to do everything, you know, talk and communicate and move. And his body wasn't always up to his desires. So he would, you know, kind of thrash himself into some kind of movement, try to stand. He wasn't containable uh, in some ways. You know, it was difficult because he's trying to stretch out. My father was also kind of resolved to not die. And so um, there was a lot in common between the two of them, which I was sad to recognize because they wouldn't necessarily have that time to have a conversation about it. I didn't really want to be between them. I kind of wanted them to be together. So, you know, so that maybe was the, that was the grief that I was experiencing that was different, that would be different than the grief of loss in the, you know, that would come later. My father would be hospitalized, and he was often in a ward where children weren't permitted. So I would, you know, as not to infect other patients uh, with germs and such. So uh, there was one moment where I had to leave my son with my husband and then fly out to go see him for, you know, 24 hours or whatever, and then I flew back. And my son was quite small then, but it was, he, maybe he was like four or five months, but it was the first time he was completely furious with me. And when I came back, he was like just so angry at me for leaving. He wouldn't let me hold him. He was very resistant to me being even around him until he, you know, until after a few minutes, he calmed down and let me hold him. Um... And so that was that was kind of a weird space for me in recognizing that my son had his own agency. Um, at the same time, you know, my father was annoyed, you know, in my coming and going. And that, you know, that's a dynamic that most people deal with when someone's very ill is it's not all 
sunshine and flowers um, as you're making that transition, there can be a lot of energy. And so, you know, this it's a space maybe of being between two personalities, but really just kind of being conscious of how many wills there are in the room. And that's, in some ways, that can be disorienting. In the room, if there's one person who's in charge and one person who's important and one person whose story is the most most recognizable, then it's very easy to know what the flow of the room is going to be. But when there's more than one person in the room whose story is very strong, it becomes more difficult to know who to follow in the room. You know, so that was challenging for me. I think at that point I was such a mush pile that it was really my dad and my sons. I was just trying to function. I mean, a story of mine would emerge out of those contexts, but in that moment, it was really their stories. And what do you do with that as a writer, as a person whose work is about, to my understanding of your work, is a lot about picking apart stories and reassembling them and putting different pieces of different people's stories next to each other to try to re-see them. When that kind of thing is happening in your life, how do you respond to that as a as an artist, as a writer? I, I think that the the amazing thing about other people's stories for me is that um, the process of showing them or curating them or arranging them for me, I think, reveals a lot about what I see. And so that's helpful. I think the process with my father, I, I did a lot of note-taking and taking his story down. But, you know, when you asked me about thresholds, it's a strange threshold for me, his death, because it it just seems to go on. And it's not a space that I've felt completely secure in writing about from a personal standpoint, though I think every project I've done since then is kind of looking at aspects of his life as they relate to bigger questions, questions of industry, questions of work, questions of race, questions of gender. All of those things would be conversations that I would have with him. And I can't fully predict what his response would have been. So the essay gives me space to investigate some of that. I was teaching uh, yesterday or the day before, I was teaching um, Nadja Marie Eitz's book, When Death Takes Something, You Give It Back, about the death of her son, Carl. And I was trying to find language to talk about grief. And it's very funny because I feel like grief is something that just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. It just keeps moving, you know, it's like a, a, a little haint on my shoulder, or sometimes it gets ahead of me, or sometimes it's way down the street, but it's always there. And I have, I have not succeeded in crossing that threshold. I feel like it's kind of a, a, a thin place that just keeps extending. And I, I'm not, I, I'm surprised that I even wanted to talk about it, but it, I guess I guess I'm provoked, you know, by some of the things that you've been writing to think about those spaces. Has it changed at all? Because that's something I notice. Sometimes you're 
in some kind of liminal space, but you're there for a long time. And either you're changing inside it or it's changing a little around you, even though the framework is still sort of there. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. There's almost like an uh, a, another time cycle in inside the grief. And there is a duration, it feels like also also a process of endurance, like one must bear the grief. Um, I also find it kind of ridiculous. So when I am beset with grief, I am enraged and also think it's hilarious uh, because it just sneaks up on me and clobbers me without provocation. You know, I might be walking through the subway and somebody's singing a song in the subway as I'm changing from the one to the queue. And all of a sudden I'm a, a mess. For Christmas this year, my mother gave me you know, always, always great on the Christmas holiday until my mother gave me a flag, you know, one of the memorial flags. And it, my father was, had been a Marine, but it wasn't a, a memorial flag from his service, but it was the flag he had bought after 9-11 to kind of support the country. And I saw the shape of it and I was like, Christmas is ruined. Oh, no. <laughs> You know, and as I'm unwrapping it, I'm like, yeah, you know, and that large, sad feeling comes and it's important and, but it's also kind of spectacular in its power in a way that's absurd. The something that strikes me in your work is reflected in what you're talking about, which is that you can be having this extremely visceral emotional experience that's about your family and it's about your identity and it's about your grief and it's about your dad and it's about Christmas and it's happening under the Christmas tree. And it's also part of these really big stories, these really big grand national narratives that are the things that you're working on in academic contexts and in textual ways. And that that is something I love about your work. And that's a correspondence that I'm interested in, in the way that these kinds of thresholds or liminal places mm. often operate in our lives is that they seem to feel both extremely personal and absolutely like part of a super narrative. And I have this theory that a lot of artists make work because they're trying to work on it while they're inside it. And I'm wondering if that's what it feels like for you. I, I, I like that description. I think there's, there's an inheritance that I got from my mother, which was a sense that the stories of our family's lives weren't small. And no one in my family is famous. So it wasn't a question or it wasn't a sense of proportion that would be determined by recognition, but it was a sense of value that was created by connection to larger narratives and to, in some ways, to a very focused moral compass, which people individuated, they they took their own take on it. But I think for the most part, um, my family very much saw themselves as hardworking people. And hard work creates all kinds of, it connects to all kinds of narratives, especially in this American ideology, 
which could be very specific to a region. I grew up in a region of manufacturing, and that was a specific narrative. But there are specific narratives all over. My grandfather worked in the in the New York Transit. In he was a subway token taker, so there's a narrative there. In some ways, that also has influenced my work in the sense that I am interested in not necessarily what the famous people do, but what the working people do, and and the ways in which they define their works, and not just that kind of industrial working class idea of work, but what but what people commit their lives to, and and how they exercise their values through their contributions. What did your dad do? He worked for General Motors. He was in in human resources, as they used to call it, personnel. And what was he like? He was a, uh, he was very much a company man. He kind of came up through the auto industry first as a security guard, and then you know moved into a, uh, a desk position. And he had that job for a long time. And shortly after I graduated from college, he was suddenly laid off. And so that was a very dramatic moment for our family, but you know, in particular for him because he had des- defined himself really for twenty some odd years as a company man. And so that recalibration of his idea of what work is would shift a lot. You know, the, the economy was also changing; everything was going online. It's harder for you know an older African American man to get work and he you know he found things here and there that he would do but you know eventually he moved into full retirement even in that he saw himself he made sure that he was a very busy person and what's your son like he's a very interesting person i have no i, I feel like he's at a phase where he's changing very much and and uh, each day i'm i'm kind of trying to learn who he is but um he's a he's a great pal did they get to spend much time together no, uh, my father passed when he was ten months old. Okay, but they did meet. They did meet. Yes, yes, and they had. They, I, I think they have some things in common in terms of uh, determination and their stamina. But I think they would have had some interesting conversations. I'm struck by you saying that you feel like you're still sort of on that threshold of that experience, even though some of the corporeal and temporal factors have changed, but that it doesn't feel like you're over the experience of welcoming your son into the world and grieving your father's exit from it. Do you think that's something you're going to have to write your way out of? I th- I think so today. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think I've ever, I, I, I don't think I've before this point really been able to get that close to those two ideas in some ways because the it's it's not so much the factor of the loss that is um hard to process because that is clear but what is difficult i think for me is processing the continuing feeling of pain of that loss which i think is just the human experience with grief but i i wasn't so well studied in it before there's ways in which I'm not conscious of it at all most of the time. And that's why I find it funny in some ways now when it just sneaks up on me because it's so strong. And yet here I was just walking through the subway. I was just doing quite well in the day. 
uh, and, and, and it shows up. But, you know, an, another thing that's really nice about grief is that it can connect you to other people's experiences of loss in a way that I didn't think I could access before that. Do you keep notes in this, as you're in this phase of not feeling like you can really face it head on, and yet everything you're making is a little bit about it? Are you stashing notes away places that you'll come back to? There's, yeah, there's lots of notes, but sometimes I don't always trust my notes because they can be misdirections. They can be kind of confident declarations that I know what I'm doing or that I know what the what the trajectory of a story is going to be. I'm just very happy in this moment to kind of think about the spaces of transition as being appropriate, that they endure for the, the appropriate amount of time that they need to. And so I'm trying to really learn from what being in that in-between space is giving me. Thresholds is a production of LitHub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. And special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.